For those of you here joining us today for the first time, welcome. Such a joy to have you in the house. My name's Jay Duncan. My beautiful wife, Christy, was up before me. We've been in the city for 18 years in the same church. It's gone through a number of different iterations, but man, we couldn't be happier to be a part of the New Life family. We're one of eight congregations in the city of Colorado Springs, and we're delighted to have you with us this morning. We've been in a series in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah's in the Old Testament, and I'm going to do a very, very quick and short recap of the past six weeks, because we're in six weeks in the book of Nehemiah. And these, this recap is, I think, going to set us up to go back, actually, because we're, we're plodding along, and we're getting some really good traction. Uh, two weeks ago, we hit chapter four. Last week, Jonathan hit chapter three. And uh, there's just a lot of great material. But what I want to do is I want to encapsulate all of that in a brief summary. And then I actually want to go back to chapter one, and I'll tell you why here in a minute. So for those of you who might be unfamiliar with the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah is written in what's called the post-exilic era of Israel's history. So because of their sin and their unfaithfulness, their rebellion and their disobedience, they're hauled off to a land that's not their own. And they're there for decades. In fact, Jeremiah, one of the Old Testament prophets, he's crying out to God and God essentially tells Jeremiah, hey, you just need to simmer down a little bit because you guys are going to be here for a while. In fact, go ahead and let your sons and daughters marry and make the place that you're living in better than when you found it, right? Seek the welfare of the city, even though this isn't your homeland, because that's what God people do. That's what kingdom people do. So even if you don't feel like you're going to be in Colorado Springs for a while, if you belong to the kingdom, you've been commissioned to make this city better because you're here for such a time as this. You might be leaving next week. You might be leaving next month. You might hate or despise this city. But if you belong to the kingdom of God, God has called you to make this city better. Every person that you interact with, every school that you go to, military bases, grocery stores, churches, dig in, root in, make it fruitful until God changes your assignment. That's essentially what God was telling the children of Israel at that time. So Nehemiah is a man that is actually, he's never been back to Jerusalem. He's heard stories, he's a man of faith, he knows God, he's deeply embedded in the history of the people of Israel, and he gets word that the walls of Jerusalem and the gates of Jerusalem have been broken and burned down, and he catches a burden. He goes to his king, who is actually the king he goes to, a man by the name of Artaxerxes, is responsible for the burning down of the walls and the gates of Jerusalem, if you can imagine that. So Nehemiah goes to his enemy and asks his enemy for favor and for provision to go back to Jerusalem to help heal the land of his fathers and his mothers and his forefathers. The king, by the hand of God, grants Nehemiah uh, favor and authority. And so Nehemiah goes back. And as Jonathan so masterfully did last week, Nehemiah organizes the, the scattered and fragmented people of Israel and he puts them to work, and they begin rebuilding the walls and setting the gates in place so that the city can fulfill its prophetic destiny in that land. Yeah. Two weeks ago, we talked in Nehemiah chapter 4 that there was a lot of people that were angry with Nehemiah and the children of Israel because they were about God's business. And we said that whenever you find yourself about God's business... Whenever you find yourself like dialing in to what God is doing, you're going to receive opposition. Isn't that right? You're, you're, you have permission to talk back to me today. Whenever you find your, your hands busy with doing God's work in whatever capacity that looks like, in your family, in your marriage, in your school, in your place of vocation that God has assigned you, the enemy, he ain't going to like that. right? And he's going to oppose you. He's going to resist you. He may do it subtly, he may do it passively, he may do it frontally, he may do it powerfully. And what we learned two weeks ago is Nehemiah stands up and there's this powerful verse in Nehemiah chapter 4 verse 14 where Nehemiah looks at his people and this is what he says. He says, listen guys, don't be afraid of the enemy's threats. Number one, don't be afraid. Right. Number two, he says, remember who your God is. Yeah. And then number three, he says, fight for your family. So, man, I was all, I was like, I was jazzed. I was like, man, I'm about to hit these guys. We're going to talk about fighting for your family. And then I felt like the Lord just interrupted me, and he says, you're missing some things. And I was like, okay, well, I'm, I'm ready. 
And he's like, go back to the beginning. And I was like, what, what part of the beginning, Lord? We're six weeks into this series. Like, we preached like five messages in chapter one alone. And he's like, go back to the beginning. Go back to chapter one. So begrudgingly, I went back to chapter one. I'm just being honest with y'all. I went back to chapter one. And I was like, how, how, like, he's like, just read and read it out loud and read it slowly. So here's where I'm going to take you. We got to go back and fill in some gaps. Okay. Because in order for us to be able to remember the Lord, in order for us to be able to fight against fear, in, able for, in order for us to be able to fight the spiritual battles that the enemy is waging against our families, against our manhood, our masculinity, our femininity, in order to fight the battles that the enemy is waging against our children, against our schools, against our nation, in order to fight those battles, we have to learn how to partner with God's spiritual weapons. We got to learn how to use the spiritual weapons that God has given to us. We have to learn how to partner with the spirit of intercession. We have to learn how to receive and carry the burden of the Lord. And we find this little clue in Nehemiah chapter 1, and we're going to go all the way back, back to verse 3. So it says, so Nehemiah is hearing about the situation that's going on in Jerusalem. Now remember, Nehemiah is hundreds, if not thousands of miles away from Jerusalem when he's hearing this. In verse 3, it says, They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. And when I heard these things, listen here, church, when I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. And for some days, here's your key, I mourned, number one, I fasted, number two, and I prayed, number three, before the God of heaven. Let's pray. Holy Spirit of the living God, I'm asking that you would do what no man or no woman can do right now in this hour. I'm asking right now that the spirit of revelation would come upon every single one of us. I'm asking that, Father, for whatever battle any and every one of us might be in, Lord, that you would release keys, keys of authority, keys of wisdom, keys of strategy, keys of faith, and keys of courage. Lord, I pray that our spirit man would be strengthened today by the Spirit of God. Lord, I pray that when the word comes to us, that it would come alive, that it would come burning. God, that it would be imparted and deposited into our spirits and that something would be awakened inside of us. And God, I pray today that you would train our spiritual hands to use spiritual weapons. God, that you would train us to be an offensive-minded people, that you would train us, God, how to do warfare on behalf of our lives, on behalf of our own purity, on behalf of our future and our destiny, and through all the cascading circles of influence that we belong to, God, I'm asking that you would train us today to partner with the Spirit of God, to partner with the Spirit of intercession in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So the first thing I want to point your eyes to is that there are seasons in God. If you notice when Nehemiah hears this news, I love this. In verse 4, it says, when I heard this, I sat down and I wept. And then the very next sentence, it says this. It says, for some days, for some days, I mourned and I fasted and I wept. And what we know is that looking at the calendar here, the moment that Nehemiah hears this from the time Nehemiah actually goes and stands before the king, there's about four or five months. There are seasons in God, seasons where God needs to go a little bit deeper and press in and kind of crash some things down deep into our spirit where they stick, where they're sustainable, where they last. A lot of us, what we want is we want kind of one-offs. One like one-off moments or one-off encounters. And what I've learned over three decades of living in God is sometimes God needs to take months, if not years. There are seasons in God where God needs to drill something down deep, where it literally transforms our lives. How many of you hearing me today? For some days, for a period of weeks, for a period of months, Now, God can lead us into these seasons. We see this all throughout the scriptures. Jesus took 40 days and he fasted before he was launched into his ministry. 
Moses, for 40 years, he was in the wilderness. Three times Moses went up to the mountain, and for 40 days he fasted without food and without water in the presence and in the face of God. These are seasons in God. And what I want to encourage you to do is I want you to think about the season that God has you in. I want you to think about seasons that God has led you in before. And I want you to think about actually initiating seasons in God. And here's what I mean by this. This is kind of a funny story. I'll never forget when I was uh, a junior in high school. It was the summer between my junior and senior year of high school. I was at this intense youth camp. It was called War Week. And like their big mantra was, we're not going to do these games. You know, we're, we're going to like press in and we're going to teach you guys how to fast and pray. And we're going to bring in these, you know, powerful speakers. So I'll, forget, I'll never forget the last night of this uh, big youth camp. I'm sitting there with my girlfriend, right? We're, we're, there, we're there with the youth group, but I've got a girlfriend at the time. And uh, the speaker is like, how many of you will give your lives to God for one year? For one year, you won't date you, you know, you live pure lives. And I was just like, y'all, I was sitting there. I was like, me, I will. This poor girl, man, she's sitting next to me like, so does that mean we're, and I'm just like this, Jesus, take my life for you, Lord. And uh, yeah, on the way home, it was a little awkward. We had to have a little, we had to have a little talk. So I was like, babe, I'm like, uh, anyways, Come back to me in a year and maybe, anyways, I think that you can initiate seasons in God. You can do it better than that, but you can initiate seasons in God, right? You can commit and you can consecrate chapters of your life to God. Let me talk to the singles here for a moment. I think that you have an incredible opportunity right now while you're not tethered down to another man or to another woman and the responsibility that comes with loving and caring and providing for another man or another woman, you have an immaculate opportunity right now to give yourself wholeheartedly. There is a chapter in your life that you can push all the chips into the middle of the table and say, God, I'm yours right now. You can heal me. You can restore me. You can break things off of my life. You can, you can break generational cycles and curses of sin off of my life. You can occupy more of the territory of my heart. You can do something in this season of my singleness that is going to take longer for you to do when I'm distracted with the spouse or with children. I'm telling you guys from experience, this is true, right? And I want to encourage you, some of you guys, I'm encouraging you to actually take bold steps in God. Like set out like, God, this fall, the next four months, I'm going to fill in the blank. There are seasons that God has where he wants to do big things that are in your life. It takes consistency. It takes intentionality. It takes commitment. And it takes saying, God, I'm going to give you this big season. Watch the next thing that happens here. It says, for some days I mourned. Now, I want to remind you that Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king. He was in the royal courts of the king of Persia, the royal courts. He had privilege. He had comfort. He was taken care of. There was no natural reason for him to want to go back to Jerusalem and roll up his sleeves and get his hands dirty, organizing a manual labor construction project with people he's never met before, except for the fact that somewhere in Nehemiah's relationship with God, listen here, somewhere in these big seasons that Nehemiah had committed to God, he had opened up his heart and he had become tender and he had become sensitive to the burden of God. So in this moment, when he hears this, God impregnates him. God imparts something deep into Nehemiah's loins, right? Into his yeah. belly into the place where his spirit man resides. And Nehemiah is captured with brokenness for a people that he belongs to and a place he has never been before. I want to encourage us. We've talked about this before many times in this church. We've done a really great job, I think, over the course of the years when something happens nationally or globally or something happens even in our own city. We try to do our best to stop to not just blow by it in our services, to try to capture the heart of God for that. And what I want to do is I want to encourage you, church, continue to make space for God to impart into you 
the burden and the brokenness of the things that he is carrying. One of the greatest privileges that we can have as human beings, I'm convinced, is that when God trusts us to carry his burden with him and for him. Look at that word right there where it says, I mourned. The first time that word is used is actually in Genesis chapter 37. Now, there's a principle in the scriptures. The first time you see a word used, it's called the principle of first mention. There's something that is within that particular verse that reveals something important about that word or that principle or that concept. Look at Genesis 37 verse 34 with me. This is Jacob. For those of you who know the story, Jacob had numerous children, but he had one favorite son. His favorite son was a boy by the name of Joseph. He was so favored that Jacob gave him his, a, 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 a multicolored robe, right? And so his brothers were so jealous of him that they staged what looked like a murder. Joseph was not murdered, but they staged what looked like a murder, and they actually sold their brother off to be a prisoner and to be a slave to another land. In Genesis chapter 37, here's how Joseph's father responds to this. Jacob tore his clothes, and he put on sackcloth, and he mourned for his son many days. Look at the next verse. All of his sons and daughters, they came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. And so his father wept for him. This is the same word. The same word that Nehemiah enters into is a word that describes a pain that is unlike any other pain I think that a human being can experience. And that is the pain of a mother or father losing a child. That pain is the word that the Bible uses for the very first time to encapsulate the idea of mourning. So, Nehemiah hears word that Jerusalem is in trouble. He's never been there, and he really has no reason to care about this because of his status. And by the grace of God, he enters into another people's pain. How often do you stop to enter into the pain of somebody else? How often do you scroll through something and hear, oh, there's hurricanes that are happening in Puerto Rico. Do you stop and say, God, do you want to burden me with this right now? Several months ago in this service, when the war in Ukraine first broke out, and June Ebel came up here to this stage, and she began to vividly and graphically walk us through what must be happening to those children what must be happening to fathers and mothers, what must be happening in subway stations and in villages and hearing mortar shells. Like, like she walked us through that to help us enter into the pain of a people that are not our own. Now, it's difficult because of how much we're saturated with the brokenness of this world to do that all the time. We, we would just, we would literally would consume us. But I, I'm curious if there are moments when God is saying, I'm looking for someone who would slow down enough to carry my burden for Puerto Rico or for Ukraine or for Pakistan or for Uganda or for foster children or for adoption or for single moms or whatever that issue, that burden. God is carrying burdens that are being felt in the broken places of our world. And he's looking for sons and daughters to carry his burden with him. It doesn't happen by living a fast-paced life. Nehemiah enters into the brokenness of Jerusalem, even though he's never been to Jerusalem. And that's what leads me to believe that you don't have to experience a person's exact pain in order to enter into their pain. It just takes willingness. It just takes slowing down. I had a friend of mine several years ago that through a situation in the courts, his daughter was awarded custody to, to the mom. And every couple of months, his daughter would come and visit. And there was one particular day, we were sitting out in the corner of our old office. His daughter had just flown back to go be with her mom. My friend was sitting there, and he was just, you could just tell. I mean, he was just brokenhearted. I made a couple of calls, canceled some of my appointments, and I just sat out there. And for about an hour, the both of us, we just sat on this curb, and we just cried. 
And I thought to myself, what must it be like? What must it feel like? Because our daughters are similar in age. She's a couple years older. And I thought to myself, what must it be like if every four months or every five months, Milan had to go fly away and go live with Christy? And I tried to imagine, I tried to put myself into that scenario. And the longer I tried to imagine that, the more tears began to flow. And I began to realize this is what my friend is walking through right now. And he didn't need platitudes, and he didn't need inspirational verses, and he didn't need any, like what he needed was just someone to sit in the yoke of that pain and just absorb that with him and share that with him and weep with him. And I'm telling you guys, it's a way that we can carry the heart of God. I also believe it's a weapon of our warfare. I believe, it's, I believe that the tears of heaven are actually tools that God has given to us in order to launch us and to activate us into a realm of intercession that we would never enter into if we were not touched with the affliction of the pain of this world. Are you hearing what I just said? Right? You cannot pray effectively if you're unwilling to be broken with the pain of the brokenness of this world. Jesus modeled this for us. In Luke chapter 19, Jesus comes into the city of Jerusalem and he's looking at the city and he's realizing as he's approaching the city, every single one of these guys, they're rejecting me and they're resisting me. And Jesus is looking out and he sees the results of their rejection. Look with me at Luke 19 verse 41. As he approached Jerusalem and he saw the city, he mourned. He wept over it like he lost a firstborn child. And he said, even if you, if you, even you had only known on this day, what would bring you peace? But now you missed your window and what would bring you peace is now hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you. They'll encircle you. They'll hem you in. They'll surround you on every side and they'll dash you to the ground. You and the children within your walls. They'll not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God coming to you, the day of your visitation. Jesus saw this. And instead of Jesus standing up and like waving his fist and saying, I told you so, Jesus entered in to one of the most powerful places we could enter into. Jesus entered into the intercession of tears. Some of you guys have been here before. You've prayed for a spouse. You've prayed for children. You've prayed for grandchildren. You've prayed for friends, coworkers. You know this, I'm telling you, is one of the most powerful places that you can live in. It is a grace of God. God invites you into this space of Holy Spirit-empowered mourning that activates an intercession you can never touch without. Let's look at the next word here. I, I, this is like the trifecta of spiritual arsenal. It really is. Like you want to talk about needing breakthrough in your life. You want to talk about entering into the yoke of intercession and seeing breakthrough come into the earthly realm. These three things right here are your keys. Sit in something long enough until it touches and activates your emotions. And then allow that to move you into a place of desperation where you actually begin to cut things out of your life. That's what fasting is. The literal word for fasting means to cover your mouth. And it means to refuse food or even drink for spiritual purposes. We see it all throughout the scriptures. I've got a quick list here as an overview. But when you look throughout Old Testament and New Testament... Anytime someone engages in fasting, they're doing one of multiple things. Number one, they're, they're seeking the presence of God in a more intensified manner. Like when you find yourself hungry for God, hungry for revelation, hungry for presence, hungry for healing, hungry for deliverance, something's going to happen and you're going to find out that the word of God and the presence of God and being in a prayer room is more important than even food itself. You'll end up skipping meals because, because you, you, just, you just need more of what God has for you in that place, right? You want the presence of the living God. Sustained by the presence and the word of God, number two, it's a sign of humility. Whenever fasting is mentioned in the Bible, it is mentioned in coordination with this idea of, God, I am humbling myself. I'm participating with the humbling process. Now think about it. Like when we eat food, we get strong physically. 
Like when you stop eating food, your physical man gets weak. And if you do that over a period of days, one day, three days, seven days, 10 days, 21 days, 40 days, you get extremely weak. But that weakness of flesh is a way of us saying, God, I'm choosing weakness as a way to humiliate and humble myself so that I can rely more on the strength and on the power of God in my life. This is one of the reasons why in seasons of fasting, when we fast and we pray and we read the scripture together, revelation comes in a more powerful way because our spirit man is alive and strengthened and our physical man is weakened and humbled. Another thing that we see here, I don't know if we have this verse here, but look at Psalm 35, verse 13, just as a way to drive this home. Psalm 35, yet when they were ill and I put on sackcloth, I humbled myself with fasting. I humbled myself with fasting. There's no greater way to enter in to the process of humility than by fasting. And I'm telling you too, man, when you start fasting, all them devils start rising up. Y'all thought you was righteous and holy. You start cutting away pizza and muffins, and all of a sudden, man, like, stuff starts rising up. You're like, dude, I need God. I I can't hide this. Demons start manifesting. Okay, anyways. All right, so another, another purpose of fasting is fasting is used in the scriptures as a sign of being set apart. You think about the Nazarites. Think about John the Baptist. Think about Samson before he just went buck wild, right? So like Nazarites were those that were set apart and they said, we are not going to cut our hair. We're not going to put any strong drink, any fermented drink, wine, beer, alcohol, whiskey up on our lips. And we're doing that to be consecrated, to be set apart for the purposes of God. Fasting helps us to set our lives apart. Fasting is also used as a sign of grief or mourning. There's something about fasting that helps us to intensify the level of grief in our life. You may remember when David, when he did, you know, wrong with Bathsheba and their first child died, David fasted and he fasted and he mourned and he grieved. And then when he found out that the the child passed, he stood up and he began to take food to strengthen himself. But in that season of grief and mourning, David fasted. And there's something about fasting that goes with grief and mourning. That helps to not only intensify that grief, but I think it also just, it releases our spirit to receive something from God in that state of grief and mourning that couldn't be done otherwise. Okay, last thing. Um, Fasting is a sign of repentance. So you'll see throughout the scripture numerous times when these prophets of old will enter into interceding for Jerusalem or Israel, many times they will fast. You see this in the prophet Joel, where he says, call a solemn assembly of fasting and weeping and more. I know it's really small, isn't it? A sign of repentance and seeking forgiveness for sin, right? So if you're in a season where you're like, God, I just want to get clean. I want to get consecrated. I want to get pure again. I want clean hands and a pure heart. I don't, I don't want to lift up my soul to an idol or swear by what is false because I want to ascend the hill of God. Try fasting and do it in a season. Remember, you can set seasons apart to God where you're saying, God, these next three weeks, I'm doing business with you. I'm cutting away food. I'm cutting away television. I'm cutting away social media. I'm cutting away sweet drinks. I'm cutting you just whatever it is that's occupying time and that has a hold of your appetites and that has a hold of your mood and has a hold of your emotions and your affections. Declare war on that thing. Say, I'm cutting that out of my life for the next 10 days. And God, I'm, I'm giving this to you. Do business with me. Do business with me. See, I think most of us, we we want powerful lives, but we don't want a powerful process. And we don't want powerful sacrifice. We don't want radical sacrifice, but we we want powerful breakthroughs. And I'm here to tell you today, if you want a powerful life in God, if you want to see breakthrough for your family and for your children and for your prophetic destiny, these are the things that it takes. It takes getting into the heart of God. It takes slowing down. It takes fasting and cutting things out of your life. And finally, what we see in Nehemiah is we see a life of prayer. Now, I want to show you in this, I think it's like six verses that Nehemiah prays. He gives us 
a model of prayer. I don't have time to bust it all out and break it all down, but I'm just going to highlight some of these things for you. Go with me to Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 5. Guys, I'm jealous for your victory. I'm jealous for you to live powerful and strong, victorious lives in God. Where the clutches of sin and Satan, they can't, they can't hold on to you. Because you just, you literally, you break the hold of the enemy off of your life and you live powerful, victorious lives in the spirit and in the natural in every arena of your life. Every arena of your life. I want you to be ballers in God, man. Okay, here we go. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 5. This is Nehemiah's prayer. He says, Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Stop right there. Nehemiah begins his prayer. And this is like, you have to understand, this is just a snapshot. This is a window into Nehemiah's prayer life. This is a small little window into relational history that Nehemiah has cultivated in God. This is something deep. Like think about in John chapter 17 when Jesus prays that high priestly prayer in the garden, in the, in the literal desert of his soul. In John chapter 17, we're getting just a little bit of a glimpse, a little window, a snapshot into this deep relational history that Jesus the Son has with God the Father. And we're getting that in these six verses here in Nehemiah. And he begins with adoration. Begin your prayer life telling God who he is. Begin your prayer life reminding your mind and your soul and your emotions and your spirit who God is. Remember, friends, listen, here's the strategy. Nehemiah says, don't be afraid, verse, chapter 4, verse 14. And then he says this, he says, remember the Lord your God. How do we remember the Lord our God? We remember it by every time you come to God in prayer. Begin with reminding yourself of who he is. This is why the Lord's Prayer starts with our Father who art in heaven. He's powerful. He's strong. He's transcendent. He's a healer. He's a provider. He's a shepherd. He's a God who is a rock and a refuge. He is a mighty tower. He is a fortress. He is a great defense in your life. Speak that. Speak that over the atmosphere of your home. You're the joy of my salvation. You're the God of covenant. You're the God who is a promise keeper. You're faithful to the end. Your name endures throughout all generations. And listen, if you get lost, all you got to do is just roll up in the Psalms. And then anytime you see a descriptor of who God is, man, latch on to that. I, I underline those things. I highlight those things. But here's the powerful tool. Speak those things out with your mouths. God, this is who you are. This is who you are. Create an atmosphere over your workplace by announcing in the heavens, over your territory, this is who God is. This space belongs to God. This cubicle belongs to the presence and the kingdom of God. This is the God who reigns in this place. This is what Nehemiah does. This is what Nehemiah does. He begins with adoration, with praise, with worship, with wonder. Let's go on to the next thing. Verse 4, he says, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night. For who? For your servants, for the people of Israel. Now listen, this is not a formula. These are just kind of different dynamics in prayer. But Nehemiah rolls into intercession. I am praying, God, for a people that are not my own. I am praying for people outside of just my needs. Like God is looking, his eyes look throughout the entire earth and he's looking for people that he can show himself strong to who will stand in the gap in the brokenness of other people's lives. God loves it when you pray for other people besides yourself. To intercede simply means to stand in the low places of the wall of someone else's life. That's what it means. Where they're vulnerable to the enemy, you're gonna step right into that gap and you're going to say, I'm going to stand in this gap and I'm going to pray for the power and the provision and the presence of God to fill this gap. And when it's done, I'll step back out because my work here is done. That's intercession. Again, we find this in John chapter 17 when Jesus 
before he goes to the cross, he begins interceding for you. He begins interceding for me. He intercedes for all those that will believe on him. In fact, this is so important to the ministry of Jesus that we find in the book of Romans that Jesus is actually at the right hand of God now, interceding for you and for me. Like this is his eternal ministry until he comes back again. He is fighting on your behalf and on my behalf. You know what intercession does? Intercession allows us to engage battle and to do warfare, literally with the enemy himself, by the power of God on behalf of someone else's life. And I'm convinced that what we see in Nehemiah chapter 4, when Nehemiah is rolling up and he's strong and there's leadership and there's courage and there's confidence coming out of him, you know where Nehemiah won that battle? In chapter 1. I hope you're you're catching that right now. Uh Like before Sanballat and Tobiah, before they ever roll up on the scene, Nehemiah had already won victory for that battle. Because for five months... Nehemiah was fasting and he was mourning and he was doing intercession for the people of Israel. He won the battle before the battle ever began. That's why when Sam Ballot comes at him and he's intimidating him and he's threatening him, Nehemiah's like, whatever, dude, I ain't going to come off this wall. I'm too busy for you. Like that, that, that didn't infect his soul. Now you guys know, you guys know what I'm talking about when like fear and intimidation affect your soul. You get all crazy and wonky and, oh, no, 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 man. Go win the battle in the place of prayer. Win the battle in the place of prayer. Don't be moved. Don't be moved. There is a place in the secret place of God where you can obtain victory that when you come out of that, no matter what is said and no matter what is done, you are not going to be moved in God. All right, let's look at a couple of things here that happened, and we're going we're gonna to close this out. Jonathan or Seth, whoever's coming, you guys can come on up. I got, I got choices now, y'all. <laughs> I got options. All right, look at, look at what Nehemiah says. Still in verse 6, he says, I confess the sins that we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. Hey, listen, in prayer, this is one of the components of prayer, confession. You know what confession is? It's just being ridiculously honest with God about what you have done that offends him or what you haven't done that you know you should have done. It's just taking ownership. It's just taking ownership. Like, listen, when you stand before God, one of the best things you can do is just do honest confession. It's like I tell my boys all the time. I'm in the basement. I come into the basement about once every week to watch a little football game, looking around. I'm like, there's that. That's broken. You know, that's broken. Look at those window screens broken. Paint chips are falling off. And I'm just like, come here, boys. Come here. Come here. What happened? I don't know. I don't know. What me? What me? What me? I'm like, okay. Yeah, it was the dog, right? It was the dog. It just happens. I try to tell my kids all the time, listen, if you'll just man up, stamp up, and say, Dad, I did this. This was me. You're going to experience nothing but grace. That's what confession is. Confession is getting into the presence of God and saying, God, that it, I, I did it. I did, I did it again. I did it again. And I receive grace, and I receive mercy, I receive forgiveness, I receive comfort, I receive tenderness, I receive love, I receive strength. Help me, God. Dude, I'm telling you, if my boys did that, I'd be gushing out grace. Oh, come here, that's okay. Let me show you how not to do that again next time, right? That's what confession is. Just don't, you don't have to hide. When you hide, it steals your power. When you hide, you're cutting yourself off. From the greatest source of power in your life, you're cutting yourself off from God himself. You're cutting yourself off from his wisdom. You're cutting yourself off from his fatherhood. You're cutting yourself off from his forgiveness and his strength. Own it. Confess it. That's what Nehemiah does right here. Let me take you to this last. There's this last section here. There's a lot of other things. Meditate on this prayer. Nehemiah shows us how to pray. There's adoration, there's intercession, there's confession, there's remembrance. He's reminding God of his promises. But here's my favorite. He says this word right here. Look at verse, 10, uh, verse 11. He says, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant. And to the prayer of your servants, look at this, who delight in revering your name. There is a place in prayer that you can get to where it's just pure delight. Like you've, 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 you've adored God. You've interceded on behalf of other people. 
you've confessed sin, you've reminded him of his promises, and then he closes out and he says, listen, God, we delight in you. Like doing war on your behalf, this is a joy. Like carrying your burden for the poor, for the downhearted, this is, this is a joy. Like stepping into the gap and knowing that we're bringing heaven to earth, this is a joy. We delight in this. We love doing work with you. We love being in the yoke of what you're doing in the world. Friends, would you stand with me this morning? Some of you have been doing this for years. You've been mourning and you've been fasting and you've been praying. And I think the word for you today is be encouraged and be strengthened. Stay faithful, keep it up. God is a God who keeps promises. I pray that you would not grow weary in well-doing, but know that in due season, that God is gonna come through, right? Some of you, you're right in the middle of this right now. You're just right in the middle of this battle. And I pray that strength would be deposited into your spirit and into your soul. Let strength arise inside of you. There's some of you, you've never heard this before. Some of this, the way that it was said, it's just all brand new. And I want you to know that part of our assignment in this house is to equip you to live lives of victory in God, to equip you. You may have never heard some crazy preacher telling you to cut, you know, food out so that you can get breakthrough in God. I'm telling you, after 30 years and and reading and, and watching what God has done in the earth through intercessors who have lamented and grieved and mourned and fasted and prayed, I'm here to tell you today, it is the atomic bomb in your arsenal. You need to learn how to fast. You need to learn how to mourn. You need to learn how to pray. Deep in your prayer life, you guys, it's a language. Like any other language, prayer is a language. And you can become fluent and you can become authoritative and you can become strong and mighty in God. You can break through superficiality. You can have as deep a relationship with God as you want. You just, ha- you just have to give yourself to it. And it takes a lifetime. But I'm here to tell you today that you can do it. Would you lift up your hands with me this morning? I want to pray for you before we come to the table. Almighty God, would you visit us right now in this moment? God, would you pierce through discouragement and despair? Would you bust through disillusionment, oh God? Father, I pray today that hope and faith and strength would arise with inside of us. Lord, I pray that our spirit man would be encouraged and would be strengthened today. Lord, I pray that decisions would be made right now in the presence of God to lean in, to devote entire sections and chapters of our lives to you. Father, I pray that you would call us, that you would steal us away. God, that you would do a deep work inside of us, a rearranging work, a reorienting work, a transformative work in our lives on our behalf. But Father God, on behalf of all those that we're connected with, There's grandparents in the room, there's parents, there's singles, there's uncles, there's brothers. God, we're all connected to a network of people that will be affected by the depth of our relationship in God. And so I'm praying today right now that you would draw us in to a level of engagement with you that will literally change the future of our friends and our family members and even our enemies. I'm praying it today in Christ's name. Amen. Friends, we're going to invite you to this table today to receive the body broken and the blood shed for us, and we'll all take it together. You can exit on the left, come up here in the front row. They'll administer this to you, and then we'll all take it together.
Friends, I'm reminded as we come to this table today that these three key ingredients of learning how to mourn with God and fast with God and pray, these are the three things that Jesus lived. And I'm convinced that it empowered him and enabled him to be strong in his greatest moment of trial, and that was to lay his life down for all of humanity. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, he was betrayed by one of his close friends. He was sitting and having a meal with his disciples, and he took bread at that table, and he broke that bread. If you would just break this bread in your hand right now. And he said to them, he says, this right here is my body. My body's going to be broken. It's going to be broken for you, and it's going to be broken for all of humanity to release healing and to release wholeness and grace and life. So friends, would you today receive the body of Christ broken for you? In the same way, Jesus took the cup. He says, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. It's no longer a covenant of works. It's not a transactional covenant. It's a covenant of grace. Essentially what Jesus was saying is what I'm about to do, I'm covering all of your sins, past, present, and future. On the basis of what I'm doing alone, you're forgiven, you're free, you're clean, and you've been given a new start. Redemption begins in the blood of Jesus. The only way I can stand up here and preach a message about being powerful in God is because of what Jesus has done by his blood. So friends, receive the blood of Christ. Your sins are forgiven in the blood of Jesus. And for that, we end our services with a song of thanksgiving. Let us sing. You know, sometimes the Christian life, not sometimes, the Christian life was never meant to be lived alone. And sometimes you can say, listen, I've mourned and I've fasted and I've wept and I still don't see that there's any breakthrough. It's because we were never designed to do these things in isolation or independence. Sometimes you just need to come and have a brother or sister lock hands with you and say, I'm going to weep with you and I'm going to fast with you and I'm going to pray with you. And these people, every week, they pray for you. Before you ever walk in the door, your lives have already been covered and saturated in prayer. And they're ready to pray for whatever you throw at them. So before you leave today, if you just want a brother or sister to join their faith with yours, come up here and receive ministry at the altar. And let me bless you as we're heading out of this place. Will you just hold up your hands? May the blessing of the Lord today fall upon you mightily. May the blessing of God's favor and the blessing of God's goodness and the blessing of God's grace, may it rest on you and may it surround you. May God's face be lifted up upon you. And may you lock eyes with God himself this week and be captivated and captured by the wonder of who he is. May his love fall upon you and may it heal you and may it strengthen you. And may he activate every good gift that has been put inside of you. And may he do it for the glory of God as you were sent to join him on his mission in the earth. And I pray this today in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Friends, go see my wife out there. If you're interested in a mission trip next year, God bless you and be sent in the power of God. Amen.